0: Good morning, everyone. I'm excited to bring the word to you again this morning. Um, and, uh, you know, last week I made a joke about how every, every week I have a stopwatch and I, like, check Jeremy's introductions, and then I committed the same atrocity of a very long introduction before we get into the text. I'm not going to do that again today, is what I told myself before I wrote this sermon. And then um, here we are. So let's dive in. <laughs> Let's dive in. Um, but no, so it, just like there is going to be some repetition from last week to this week. That is uh, because there is repetition in the text, okay? We are driven by what the, what the Bible says. And so last week, maybe as helpful as a primer, these Gentiles come to Jesus. They want to meet him, and this is what opens the door for him to say, now is the hour. The hour has come. In other words, like it is the beginning of the end. We see this like scene change um, where now we are in the final days of Jesus' ministry leading up to his suffering and his death. And when the Bible talks about the hour throughout the book of John, it's talking about this moment. It's talking about Good Friday to Easter is really what it's getting at. And so <clears throat> we have this interaction uh, where Jesus talks to his disciples in response to the Greeks coming to to see him, and it continues on in this section, but a lot of the themes are the same. So last week we talked about like what is following Jesus, how do we do it, and again here we're going to see like he calls us to follow him in such a way that we lose our life in order to gain it, and now he shows us what he's about to do that we're going to follow him into. So it's like he puts he puts flesh on the bones of last week's sermon. So with that in mind, let me pray for us, and then we'll we'll dive right in, Lord. We come to you with, um, I come to you hoping that your glory would be revealed in this passage in such a way that it would stir in our hearts a desire for nothing else than to see you glorified, just like Jesus does in this passage. So would that be true of us, truer and truer today and tomorrow and this week uh, because of your word and your spirit's work through it? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, there is a, <laughs> there is a, uh, um, we, we, we have some, we have an inside joke amongst the elders that every sermon has to involve uh, a D.A. Carson quote, a C.S. Lewis quote, and a Tim Keller quote. That's the trifecta, okay? And uh, I think, I, I, think I, I went two for three last week. Um, unfortunately, I think this week I'm going to go one for three. Uh, but it is a lot of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, and if I were to recommend a book for you to start, if you haven't dove into the world of Lewis, beyond maybe The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, can I just recommend that you start with The Weight of Glory? The Weight of Glory. I know mere Christianity is the one that everyone thinks is really cool, but if you're a hipster, The Weight of Glory, okay? But in The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, he makes a profound statement, and he says, He who has God and everything else Has no more than he who has God only. Let me say it again. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. He does this in light of this whole discussion where he talks about the weight of God's glory, the weight of it. He argues that we are creatures created with this longing that can only be filled and satisfied by God's glory. And it's not like, it's not necessarily like a God-shaped hole where we get these other things in life and then the missing piece is God and you plug that in and like that's like you have X, you have Y, and God is Z and now you have the whole alphabet. It's like, no, God is the substance of all joy behind everything. He is like um, the strength, the solidity behind all of joy and all of life as the source of all of joy and all of life and all of creation. And so he gives, it's helpful, I think, because when we think about glory, a lot of times we think fame or praise, you know, like, oh, he got all the glory for, you know, passing the test, getting an A. He got all the glory for winning the game. And we think of it like praise, recognition, and of course, like, fame is part of the idea of glory, but the Bible's version of glory goes beyond that fame, beyond just fame, to like weight, heaviness. As an example, we see in Corinthians, Paul writes, uh, you know, we have, we, day by day we're passing, we're passing away, like externally we're passing away, but we're being renewed inwardly, and our, our suffering is achieving a glory that far, what, outweighs it all, all of the suffering. There is like a heaviness, a weight, a sol- like a solid nature of God's glory. That's important because when we come to this text, we're going to see God's glory weighed against everything else on a scale. And of course, like Jesus is going to do this weighing and you can guess which, which one is going to be heavier for him. But the same is true for us. Each day we weigh the things of the world, our, our desires, other glories, against the glory of God. And which one is heavier in your life is the question that the text asks us this morning. Which one is heavier? And this matters, like really briefly, because there is no greater theme in the Scripture than the glory of God. Let me say it again: there is no greater, more prominent theme in the Scriptures than the glory of God. I'm try to prove my point so you don't just think I'm throwing things out there okay just a few examples through the scriptures god chooses people for his glory Ephesians chapter 1 god creates us for his glory Isaiah 43 god calls israel for his glory in Isaiah 49 god rescues israel from egypt for his glory Psalm 106 god raised up pharaoh to show his glory he defeats Pharaoh to show his glory. He spares Israel. There's, there's passages for each of these. Trust me. A wilderness. He spared Israel in the wilderness for the, the glory of his name, Ezekiel 20. He gives Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name, 2 Samuel. He does not cast his people away for the glory of his name, 1 Samuel. He saves Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name, 2 Kings. He restores Israel. He tells us to do good works so that God gets the glory in Matthew chapter 5. He warns us that not seeking glory makes fi- God's glory makes faith impossible in the book of John. When we ask for things in Jesus' name, it is what? For God's glory. We're going to get to that passage in a couple weeks. He gave his son to vindicate his glory. He forgives our sins for his glory. He, Jesus is, receives us into fellowship for his glory. That's enough. But you get my point. You know, I'm not not just throwing it out there. His glory is the driving force. It's like the heart that pumps blood into all else of Scripture to give it life. It's all about His glory. So we come to the the passage today with like a little bit, hopefully we've painted some extra colors on the canvas of what it means that God uh, has glory and is glorified. All right, Verse 27. Here's how we're going to structure the passage this morning. Very simply, we're going to talk about this plan that Jesus has to achieve glory, right? To bring glory to his Father. So, very, like, I'll give you the overview now. There's going to be the reason for the plan. There's going to be um, the repercussions of the plan. Then there's going to be the plan, which is why I'm not the senior pastor here, okay? I couldn't think of a third R for this one. Then... The reaction to the plan and then the result of the plan okay first first the reason for the plan and the reason is god's glory verse 27 verse 27 jesus says now is my soul troubled now is my soul troubled remember just in the passage for us he says the hour is here the scene changes he's heading towards his death and it's agonizing to him mentally, like psychologically agonizing to Jesus. It isn't easy. And I said this point last week, but like eternal life is not the same as easy life. That is not only true for us. That is also true for Christ, which we see immediately after he calls us to follow him. He says his soul is troubled. He's not, at, he's not calling us to something that's easy. He's calling us to something that's weighty, that is eternal. Okay? So he says, my soul is troubled. <clears throat> And what shall I say? And what shall I say? Now there's two ways to read this passage where he says, My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. You can either read it like Jesus is saying, Well, what am I going to do about it though? You know? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's not going to do anything. But I don't think that's the right way to read the passage. I think the better way to understand what Jesus is saying here is actually that he that he takes like a deep seriousness, my soul is troubled, what shall I say? And the next words out of his mouth are a prayer. Father, save me from this hour. And the reason I think that's the better way of understanding the text is because it reflects how he talks elsewhere. And it's like, take this cup from me. And very similar to that passage where he says, take this cup from me, where it's an honest request, right? Yes, he has a desire to not go to the cross. Did you know that? He has a real, legitimate desire to not go to the cross. But he has a greater desire. What is his greater desire? Verse 28. Sorry, verse 27b. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Verse 28. Father glorify your name so we see Jesus with two desires one to avoid the agony of the cross and then a greater desire one that outweighs it which is what that his father would be glorified that he would meet the purpose this is the reason for the plan is that his father would be glorified the weight of God's glory outweighs his desire to avoid the cross I read this week uh, a, a, a recent survey that made me laugh pretty hard. And it made me laugh because not, not so long ago, I asked my brother a question. Let me say, tell you what the survey is first. They surveyed, they surveyed people on whether or not, I don't know why they surveyed, they surveyed people on whether or not they think that in an emergency, they could land a commercial plane. Men. 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 Pay attention. Nearly half of you believe that you can. Okay? That was the... 26% were very confident that they could successfully land a commercial plane if it came down to it. My brother went to the University of North Dakota to become a commercial airline pilot. He studied aviation there. He eventually became an air traffic controller. He would be the one who would walk you through how to land a plane Art, should you find yourself in this situation, okay? And I asked him, like, a couple years ago, I was like, so, I don't know, this is why men are polled about this, because they think about these stupid things, but I was like, if we were in a, you know, a plane, could you land it, could you land, like, my Delta 737, you know? And he goes, oh, no. And I was like, not even a little bit, like, not even a few people live, and he's like, maybe like 10, and I was like, oh no. You know, you just have this like thing. Well, can't they walk you through it? He's like, it is way more calm All of, okay. You're wondering what this has to do with the weight of God's glory. <laughs> Nearly half of men think they could land a plane. We are far too confident. We are far too confident in our own abilities. When you get onto a plane, I was reminded of this though. When I, when I get onto the plane, this right here, this, this survey and my conversation with my brother, there is a reason when I go through the jet bridge and I get into the plane that I turn right. Okay that I don't turn left to sit in the cockpit. Because if I did, if I was the one directing the flight, if I was the one in control, it would be disastrous for everyone on board, including myself. And so we will often in life have these moments where we have to decide whether we're going to turn left and fly our own plane or turn right. And I'm telling you, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I'm going to turn right, I'm going to let the Lord fly the plane, I'm going to let my Father fly the plane, and this is the mission for which he's sent me. So I let him direct it. This is the only way that people will land safely. And you'll have so many moments in your life where you need to decide to turn right. Even though you want to turn left. Don't be so overconfident. If you are a Christian, then the desire for God's glory trumps any other desire. It takes supremacy in your heart. It doesn't mean that you hate everything else. We talked about this last week. But it does mean that when there are moments in your life where, the, where God's glory and what he calls us to comes into conflict with what you want, then, then your desire for God's glory must win. That is what it means for it to take supremacy. You may have desires that are not inherently sinful, and yet you're asked to lay them aside so that God's will would be done, so that he would be glorified in your life. And, but but this creates a problem for those who do not truly believe. It creates a problem for those who are merely religious. The merely religious, those who do not trust, those who have not lost their life to find eternal life in Christ, who have not put to death self-centeredness so that they could have God-centeredness, who care about their own glory... More than they care about God's glory, the merely religious who fill pews every Sunday morning and do good Christian things have a problem now, though, and I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like morality without humility. That's one of the things that it looks like. When you are merely religious, more concerned with your own glory than God's glory, but you've got Jesus and, and Christianity as some like part of your life rather than the supreme thing in your life. It looks like morality without humility. It looks like doing good things so that for your own glory you feel good about yourself, because at least I'm not like Ellie, you know? At least I'm not like Preston. I don't do what they do. Not to throw you guys under the bus. But like It looks like morality without humility. You're not doing good things because you're so consumed with God's glory. You want Him to be praised by people. You know, that you do good works, that people would praise your Father in heaven. No, you do good works. You feel good about yourself. You feel better than others. and You have this inflated sense of pride. It looks like sorrow without joy. It looks like sorrow without joy. You will be unable to manage through difficult things for God's glory when it is demanded of you. Because, like First Peter passage we talked about last week, you have been grieved by various kinds of trials so that the genuineness of your faith may result in praise, honor, and glory of Christ. But if you are not consumed by the glory of Jesus... Then the genuineness of your face, which is not genuine, comes into contact with suffering and it crumbles because you're actually consumed with your own glory. And if you're, you're your own God, then suffering doesn't make sense because if you're your own God, why wouldn't you prevent it? Suffering doesn't make sense, so you end up in despair. You have sorrow without joy. Not, I would say, adjacent to that is you have suffering without purpose. Those who are merely religious have suffering without purpose. Because suffering, again, it interferes with the delusion that you're in control. It interferes with your religion of self-glory above God's glory. You don't have a category for the fact that God might use suffering to bring about character and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us because it's grounded in Him. So it brings suffering without purpose. And the gospel is the antidote to all of these things. Can I tell you one other thing it looks like? It looks like confession without authenticity. If God's glory is not supreme in your life, it looks like confession without authenticity. And we know what these prayers sound like. We've probably prayed them ourselves, but it looks like I'm going to confess my sins to someone because I know I should confess my sins, but I'm not going to confess how, how really the really bad ones, you know. You're in you're in small group and it's like, I've been struggling with pride lately, because that's like, that's okay. No one's going to judge you too harshly if you struggle with pride. I've been struggling with adultery lately. I've been struggling with murder lately. Those are the things maybe you're less likely to share because they're not acceptable, right? And if you're about your own glory, then you can't share those things that might have other people think less of you, at least not significantly less of you. But if you're about God's glory, then all you have is fame for his name. Why? Because when you share how deep your sin is, you also can share how good his grace is. He looks better. Despite our sin, He looks better because we can say, yeah, and even though I do these things, I still trust that the cross is sufficient. So this the merely religious who do not have God's glory as the supreme thing in their life, but their own, will have confession without authenticity. They will have relationship without evangelism. That's another symptom. Relationship without evangelism. Why? Because they're fine building relationships, they might be fine inviting people to church, but when it comes to actually sharing the gospel, that might conflict with their own religion, because God forbid they think worse of me, or they think I'm strange, or they think I'm weird because I'm not willing to, like, because I share my faith. And so, like, they, on the path of evangelism, they stop short of calling people to repent and believe. Because that would be about God's glory, them knowing and worshiping him. But it threatens our glory because they might reject our message. They might reject us. They might think we're a strange Christian person telling them to repent and believe. Looks like relationship without evangelism. Finally, I think it looks like striving without rest. Always have to do. Always have to do. Always have to do. Always have to do. Why? Because it's really hard to be your own God. It's a lot of work to be God, especially when you're not strong enough, and you're not good enough, and you're not all-knowing enough, and eternal enough to be your own God. So like, you'll never know rest. The gospel is the antidote to all of these things. For Jesus, for Jesus being merely religious would look maybe like Christmas without Good Friday and Easter. You know, it would look like his life in ministry without going to the cross. It would look like him saying, my soul is troubled and I'm not going to go through with it. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He says, no, this is my purpose. Father, glorify your name. And the father who loves his son deeply confirms it. He says at the end of verse 28, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. The crowd doesn't seem to understand, some say it's an angel, some say it's thunder, they don't know what is said, it appears like they're they're not getting the translations not coming through, and yet, and this is kind of confusing at first take, Jesus says, the voice isn't for me, the voice is for you. Jesus has ultimate confidence, he knows that God is going to glorify his name. He knows it's going to happen. He doesn't need God to confirm it. So why does he say it's for us? I think it's like, I think, I think maybe a good way to picture it is, you know you go to a, a, a musical, and there's like, in between, in between um, acts, the, the lights go out, the stage crew comes on, they're moving around, but you see the lights go out, you see the like movement, you can't necessarily make it out, what it is, but you know something has changed. And I think this is what Jesus is doing. Is like this is the moment that hour is here. Something has changed. Pay attention to this. And the crowd can see the shadows. They see the light going out. They see the set pieces being moved. Now we come to the final hour. <clears throat> we come to um, the repercussions of the plan. Verse 30. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And these are the two repercussions. One is that the world would be judged. One would be that the devil himself would be cast out. What looks like a defeat, his crucifixion. This plan, which no one seems to understand, from the beginning of the gospel, of all four gospels, they just don't understand why the Messiah has to die. Every time he talks about it, the disciples like lose lose their marbles, and the people listening don't understand. But Jesus is saying, no, this is the moment. The world will be judged, and they will be judged. And the fact that you don't understand is a good indicator that the world needs to be judged. This now, this hour, Calvary, judgment will take place. And the judgment is like a fork in the road moment. Where those who believe, remember like throughout John we keep getting to these points where it's like a dividing line is drawn between those who believe and those who do not believe. It's all about like there's the unbelief side and the belief side. Again, we see this. Those who have unbelief, they will will be judged. If you have belief, Christ will be judged. Either way, your sin will be judged. The question is, will that judgment and punishment be paid out upon you or upon Jesus? And what determines that is whether or not you believe. Now, this judgment takes place on the cross and the devil is cast out and even death is defeated and we live on the other side of this moment. We live on the other side of the cross. So we, the age of the church that we are in right now happens after, after Calvary, obviously. Like, so what does that mean? That the world has been judged and the devil has been cast out and now we live in that time. What does that mean? You know, you go to a, um, you go to a uh, sporting event, and if it's, unless it's very close at the end, there's always this moment, every sporting event, there's always this moment where it's like, oh, it's over now, let's get to our car so we can beat traffic, you know? It's like, it could be like the touchdown that puts you up by two scores, and now there's only 30 seconds left, it's just, it's over, let's get out of here, and you start to see people run towards their cars. They want to get out before traffic, okay? The age of the church is is like the game. There's still some time on the clock, but it's over, you know? After the cross, it's over. So we live in the let's beat traffic stage of, like, redemption. I I say this because I want you guys to be confident in, like, this, this judgment that comes down as Jesus is glorified, no longer applies to you You you're free like by faith you have been saved you are saved so there's no worry that like oh i'm going to check the score and it's going to be it's going to be pretty close between the devil and jesus no it's not head for the parking garage you know that is the life of the christian is heading for the parking garage like let's beat traffic on our way to heaven Here's the plan. These last three are shorter, I promise. The plan is, in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And I've probably ruined the suspense of what the plan is, but it's the cross. And when Jesus says, I'll be lifted up, there's this, you know, it's like John playing wordplay, where he says, I'll be lifted up, lifted up like praise, we lift you up, you know, Lord, I lift your name on high, um, that kind of thing. And, um, But it's also very clear to those who would hear him that the lifting up means his crucifixion. That is like the type of death he would die. John even makes that clear. He said this to show the type of death that he was was going to die. And the cross, the plan, is the ultimate display of God's glory. And I say ultimate because there's a million displays of God's glory all around you. Go for a walk in the park. You will see his glory. Go to the Grand Canyon. Look up at the stars at night. Like, meet a newborn child. You will see his glory all over the place. But those glories are like, those glories are more like shadows of the real thing, but not the cross. The cross is the solid substance, the, the center of his glory. So if you want to see his glory displayed and you want to make your life about his glory, then you need to make your life revolve around the cross and what happened there and what was accomplished there, that, you, that the world was judged and, and, now, and, and you somehow like escaped because of his goodness, that the devil was cast out, that you're heading toward the parking garage, that... Victory is yours. And this type of death that would lift him up would draw all people to himself, which is a reference to the passage right before this where what prompts this scene change? Not the Jews coming to Jesus, the Greeks. The doors are open to all, regardless of ethnicity or age or background or location or family. None of your family and friends and coworkers are too far or too stubborn or too cold or too hurt for the warmth of the gospel to melt their hard hearts and give them life. But if you want that to happen, then my suggestion would be to point them to the cross, because that is the place where Jesus draws people to himself. <clears throat> There's no evangelism apart from the cross. This is the plan. Not just plan A, it is the plan, the only plan. And the reaction to the plan is confusion. Verses 33 and 34. This is like par for the course. But he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? How can it be that the Christ would die when he's supposed to last forever? You know, they don't, what they show here is that they don't know the kind of saving they need, and so that's why they can't recognize the kind of Savior they would need. Let me say that again. They don't recognize the, what they need to be saved from, and so they don't know what their Savior should look like. So the idea that the Messiah would come, the Christ would come, and would die, they just don't have a category from that, because that's not what they think they need to be saved from, is sin and death. It's like you imagine you call a lawn care company to come and cut your grass and a limousine pulls up and someone gets out in chuxedo. tuxedo. You'd have questions, you know. It's like th- that guy is not, there's that, that something going on here, you know. That, that doesn't make sense with the person I think would come and cut my lawn. <clears throat> it's like a silly picture, but they can't see who Jesus is um, because they, they don't really see themselves for who they are. They don't really see themselves as primarily needing salvation from sin. And there are folks everywhere, and maybe some of us, this is why like, we need to preach the gospel every week, but there are, there are some of us who live as if our biggest thing that we need salvation from is not sin, it's something else. But like, just some, some examples. Like, there are people all around the world who think right now that the biggest thing they need to be saved from is Loneliness. And so what, bec- what do they look for in a savior? The thing that will save them from loneliness. Someone who will, who will be with them and be there for them. They look for it in friends and clubs and family members. And if you think your biggest need is to be loved, you'll look for it in acceptance. You'll find a community that you feel like they love me for who I am and that's what you'll be drawn to. And there are others who think their biggest need is to be saved uh, from like, bad health. And so, like, what do they look for in a savior? Exercise, diet, vitamins, cold plunges, whatever's, like, gonna gonna extend their health, extend their life. These are the kind of saviors that they look for. But the problem is, none of these are actual saviors. They're just shadows of saviors, you know? Because, like, you can look, you can look to save yourself from loneliness, and you may find people that make you feel less lonely until they don't. And someday they won't. Why? Because someday... Even if they're the best people in the world and they never leave your side, they will die. Or you will die. I don't mean to get like really morbid, but that's, this, is, this is the problem with all these other saviors is their glory is not heavy enough to hold us up. It's like you want to be saved? You want to be saved from having bad health? Great, run and, and, and eat protein and, and do all of these things and eventually... You might get healthier for a time, but you will grow old and you will die because it's just a shadow of a Savior. It can't actually fix like, things forever. And you want to be loved. And you might find people that love you and that you love until they don't or you die. And it's like that is a really morbid thing to say, but it's just like the reality of the world that we live in. It's true. Which is why God's glory is worth putting at the center of your life, because it's the only thing heavy enough to be a foundation that lasts forever. Like, it's the only thing durable enough. If there is no God, then the best thing we can, like, hope for are shadows of Savior's. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that when you put God at the center, when you see yourself for who you are and then you see Jesus for who he really is and so it makes sense that he would die so that you can be saved from death and sin, when when this happens, like the good news of the gospel is that you get the other things too. By losing your life, you find eternal life. You get the other things thrown in. When you search for a savior like Jesus, what do you get? You'll never be alone. You'll never be unloved. You'll never be hopeless. All these things we try to save ourselves from. And when we stop trying to save ourselves with what the world offers as saviors, like these shadows, and instead we go to Jesus and we say, I don't need to be saved from them primarily, what happens is we end up being saved from them. Because we find a God who will never leave us and who always loves us and All of these things will last forever. And even the health one. It's like, well, Christians still die. Yeah, we do. And we have a resurrected body like waiting for us on the other side. And praise God, there's no sickness there, you know. Finally, the result of the plan, which is salvation. Jesus says the light is among you for a little while longer. He doesn't really answer their question of who he is. I think he's answered it enough times, perhaps. (coughs) Excuse me. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going, chasing shadows. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And you'll become sons of light, he says. His answer to this is believe. While you have the light, believe in the light. Believe today. Believe in Jesus that you may become sons of light. We've talked about sonship in the book of John, this idea of being part of the father's business. In the first century, sons did what their father did. Now, it would be like strange to not do the same business that your father did, and so we, as we put our faith in Christ, we do what our father does. Not to earn his favor, but because he's already looked upon us with favor. We live out of thanksgiving. And let me close with this. What does this mean practically? Well, It means that if God's glory is not at the center of your life, you have a problem, because whatever is at the center of your life is not heavy enough or strong enough or durable enough to be worth building your life on. Now if you are in the place though where you're like, I do trust Jesus, sometimes I still struggle with these things and putting my hope in false saviors, and I still wander the answer is, like, you, <clears throat> you see Jesus for who he is. You glorify God with your life. It's like, what does this mean practically? It means, like, let his glory be the supreme desire so that the other things that you want are always, like, underneath that umbrella of God's glory. His is primary. About two years ago, I was at a, um, a youth conference almost exactly two years ago. I was at this youth conference and I was speaking um, on Revelation where we are told like these bad things are happening to people and the message from God as he writes these messages to churches, these letters to the churches, is like be faithful unto death. In other words, like things are bad, this is in my sermon, things are bad and they might get worse, you know, but in a truer sense things are good and they're going to get far better for the believer. And I I, I preached this message to students at the end of the the last day of the conference because I wanted them, like, we have these, we go to, like, these things, you know, like the men's retreat or, like, we go to, you know, a conference or something and we get all hyped up about our faith and then we go back to the real world and it's not like that because we're not surrounded by Christians, we're not thinking about Christ all the time. Like, there's all these pressures. And so, like, for students, I feel like that's really acute and so I wanted them to think about what happens when they suffer that they could be faithful still, right? Okay, so I, I, I share this sermon and, I, um, and afterwards this lady pulls me aside and she asked me if I would pray for her daughter who is there. And I so said, of course, you know, and she brings me to her daughter and her daughter's like 17 and six months earlier she had been in a car accident and she had lost the use of her, like everything from the chest down. Like she couldn't use her fingers. Um, and like, just horrific, you know, they thought she would die. She had a broken skull and, a, and, a, and fractured um, uh, cheekbones and um, broken ribs. And she had a stroke. And she's 17. And she's in her, her chair. And I walk over to her and it's like, you know, it's like, of course I'll pray for you. What do you you want me to pray for? Is what I asked her. And she said, um, she said, pray that I would be faithful. You know, it's like, you could pray that I'd be healed. Pray that I could walk again. Pray that I could have a normal life of a teenager. No, pray that Pray that I'd be faithful, she said. She had found and experienced the weight of God's glory. So that faithfulness was a greater desire than healing. The, the, the interesting thing is, like, we, we, we go after God, we put these other things aside, we go after God, we get them too. It's like, I am, I am 100% confident that Peyton will be healed. She may even, by a miracle, be healed this side of heaven. But she says, pray that I would be faithful. So my prayer for you, for us, is that we would be faithful, that we would see God's glory as weighty enough of being supreme in our life. That we could live for him and do the things he likes and avoid the things he dislikes and enjoy him. And we'll get all of these other things too. Because his glory is heavy enough, strong enough, and durable enough to build your life upon. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Let us pray. Father, I pray you would overwhelm us with the goodness of your glory so that even when our souls are troubled, which is not foreign or strange or wrong, but even when our souls are troubled, we would say, no, we have a purpose reflective of Christ that we are here for your glory. And in doing so, I pray we would find your goodness and find your healing and find your comfort and find all of your character and your attributes and your happiness and your joy, and your goodness, and your eternity. I pray this for my friends and my family here. Show us the weight of your glory. Amen. Amen.